We have a lot of ground to cover, and so we're just going to pray together and then get right into it. So let's do that. Father in heaven, when we gather together on a Sunday, we do so because the Bible teaches us that that's when we worship, on the Lord's day. And I am so thankful for that. We see it in the book of Acts as that new practice begins, and we see it all the way through the rest of the New Testament. Lord, today is your day. But it is not lost on me that this is also your season. This is the Lord's day right in the midst of the Lord's season, your season. And I pray that that'll be the message not only of today, but the message of our lives, that we are living in your season. We are living with you as Lord of our lives. Father, help us communicate that boldly and loudly everywhere that we go. And I pray that you receive the glory. Now, as we open our Bibles, we're asking that you teach us. We're asking that you teach us deep things, wonderful things, things, Lord, that inspire us to grow deeper in our knowledge of you, things that inspire us to want to walk with you every day, things that inspire us to give you away to others. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. I started in church ministry in 1988 as an intern at Rolling Hills Christian Church. That was just an internship while I was finishing Bible college. Our first full-time ministry, mine and Tina's, was in a little dairy farming community in Wisconsin, Richland Center, Wisconsin. We accepted that job a couple months after graduation, and we were excited to get there. We were going to go explore a culture and a state, a world that we really knew very little about. So that was just part of the adventure of it, part of the excitement. The first week that we were there, I met with the senior minister, a man named Keith Shibley, and Keith said to me, Phil, we have a challenge for you. I'm like, okay, great. I was hired as the youth minister. I'm ready. Whatever challenge you want to send my way, I'm ready. I am highly educated and highly experienced. (laughs) And so this is what he said to me. He said, in our high school Sunday school class, we can't get the light on. And I thought, well, that must be a mechanical problem. You didn't need to hire a youth minister to come solve that. Flip the switch. It'll come on. He said, every Sunday, our teacher goes in there, and there is a battle with the students over the light switch. The high school students want to sit in the dark, and they're doing it every week. So when the teacher comes in and flips the switch, somebody jumps up off the couch and flips it back down. And that battle continues on through their entire Sunday school hour. So I need you to get the light on. Just get the light on. Like, all right, I'm ready for this. I can do it. Next Sunday, I walked in expecting that these high school students were going to be really excited about their new youth minister guest speaker coming in to teach them that morning, and so we weren't going to have any conflict. They had gotten there early like they always did, and sure enough, they were in the room. The shades were pulled, the light was off, and they were slouched down on the couches that were in that room. That was back in the days when people donated their old worn-out couches to youth ministry, and so the room had old worn-out couches in it. The kids were just slumped down in them. And I walked in bold and and ready for whatever was going to come, and I hit that switch. The kid jumped up out of the couch, and he came over and hit it back down. Light went off. Well, I grabbed hold of the switch, and I flipped it again, and this time a couple of kids came over, and they hit that switch, and they were standing between me and the switch. And they said, we want it to be dark in here. We like it dark. And I said, well, it's not going to be dark. And I bowed up my neck, and I thought, we're going to get it on right now, because not only am I highly educated, (laughs) I have a strong will. 
so let's see who's going to win. By golly, they wore me down, and it stayed dark, that class. The next week, I thought, I will win this battle. I will show them. So I went in earlier in the week with a roll of duct tape, and I put that light switch up, and I put duct tape across it. Well, apparently, they teach kids in high school now how to run duct tape. And so they pulled the tape off, and they hit that switch again. We battled the rest of that time for it. And the next week, we battled to get the light on. It's one of those things that I look back upon with great regret because I might have had an education, but I had little experience. And I had a strong will that maybe wasn't seeing things the right way. And I needed to bend that will to understand what these kids really needed. It wasn't about the light switch. It was about the light of Jesus. And if I could go back, and boy, there's been a number of times that I wished I could. If I could go back, I would do things totally different. We wouldn't fight over that light switch, not at all. I'd have let them sit there in the dark. If I'd have had to bring a flashlight in with me, I would have, so I could read to them a unique telling of the Christmas story. And then I'd have come back the next week, and I'd have done it again. And the next week, I'd have done it again, until eventually they understood the light of the world. One of the passages that I would have taken them to is this one. Tucked away in the first letter of John, near the end of your Bible, there's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is in his first letter, the fourth chapter. I want you to listen to what he writes. And like I say, this is a unique telling of the Christmas story. Listen close for it. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'd have read it, and the next week I'd have read it again, and the next week I'd have read it again. And we would have taken a whole different track, because I can tell you today I don't think I ever won the battle over the light. In the time that we were in Wisconsin, I'm not sure that we got to share what needed to be shared, because we chose wrong battles. We fought over things that didn't matter. This matters. It's the telling of the Christmas story. It's the telling of the love of God. And it's done in such a beautiful way. Now you may say, I, I didn't hear the Christmas story there, Phil. I, I didn't catch it. 
Well, you have to look closely and you have to listen closely, but when you do, it jumps off the page. Take a look with me at verse 9. John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. There it is. That's the Christmas story summed up in such a beautiful way. Take a look at it again. Here it is up on the screen. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There is one word in that verse that really captures the essence of the Christmas story wonderfully. Did you see it? If you didn't, here it is highlighted for you. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is not the first time, in chapter 4, this is not the first time that the apostle would use that term, manifest. In fact, it shows up multiple times in the first chapter. Keep your finger there in 1 John 4, but go to chapter 1 with me and just take a look at the first four verses. The elder writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made, here it is, manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was made manifest, there it is again, to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is an important word, one that we need to pay attention to, we need to listen to. And even though you hear it, you may not understand the significance of it. This is what manifest means. It means to come out in the open, to to be made public. That's what it means. And in chapter 4, John is saying that the love of God was made manifest. It was brought out into the open and made public through Jesus. The love of God was manifest through Jesus. Now, that was a tough thing for people to embrace during that time because the Jewish people that were waiting for a Messiah to come didn't have a full understanding of the love of God. In fact, the Bible would tell us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, that all they had was a shadow. This is how it reads. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. All they had was a shadow They could not completely understand who God was. But now in Jesus, he was made manifest. And not just God, but the love of God was made manifest. What a great message for these folks. Because leading up to this, all they really had was fear. They had a fear of the Lord. For some, it was a healthy fear, and for others, an obscure fear. But it was a justified fear. They grew up with stories like this. They knew about Moses and the burning bush. They knew about the hot coals of Isaiah's story. They knew about the terrifying visions that Ezekiel experienced. They knew about the wrestling match of Jacob that rent his hip and left him with a limp the rest of his life. You can see why fear was such a huge part of their religion, of their walk with God, their understanding of who he was. If that wasn't enough, little children in the Jewish culture grew up hearing about the sacred mountain in the desert. For those that touched it, death was imminent. 
They heard about the mishandling of the Ark of the Covenant. When people touched it, when they handled it wrong, they died. They heard about people going behind the curtain into the most holy place without a proper invitation, and they didn't come back. So fear governed everything for them, and the shadow that was the law, that's all they had. They had fear. But back in 1 John chapter 4, John tells them something pretty special. This is verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love of God was manifest in Jesus, was brought out into the open and made public for everyone to see. The perfect love of God that drives out fear was manifest right there in front of them. So there was no more fear. I want to show you how Jesus did that. This is back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, or not verse 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's how the Lord drove out fear. By sending Jesus, who in John chapter 8 would tell us he is the light of the world. In 1 John chapter 1, we find out that Jesus is light. And when God's love was manifest in him, light came into the darkness. We spent the last three weeks looking at what the light of the world looks like. Today, I want to wrap that up by showing you three different types of light that Jesus brought into the world. Hang with me as we go through this. The first one was a broad light that illuminated the culture that Jesus was born into. The broad light illuminated the world that Jesus was born into. A lot of times we believe that he was born into a time of great darkness and oppression, but that really is not true because Jesus was born during the time of Caesar Augustus. I don't know if you've ever studied Augustus's life out much, but if you did, you would find out that he had ushered in in the Roman Empire a time of, of great peace and economic growth and actually geographical expansion, exponential geographical expansion. So the people were living under a time of, of relative peace. They really were. Now, some of that came because Caesar Augustus passed a decree called the Pax Romana, that basically said, if you were to sum it all up, if you mess with Rome, we'll kill you. So that's partly where the peace came from. But because of the economic growth and development that was happening, most of the people that were part of the Roman Empire were okay with that. They started spreading out of the normal areas that we would consider a part of the Roman Empire, even into northern Africa. That's how much they were expanding as Rome was absorbing all of the areas around them. And in the process, people were prospering. Augustus actually was put forward as the Messiah by a certain group of people, the one that they had waited for, the Savior of the world. People believed that because of Augustus's reign, there would never be any kind of government strife again. Because of what he had brought into the world, peace would reign forever. 
In fact, Caesar Augustus would be the first one to use the Greek word gospel, and he attached it. It means good news. He attached it to his reign. He attached it to what he had brought to the Roman Empire, and everybody else embraced it. Everybody else thought, yeah, this is really what we have. This, this is good stuff. This is good news. We can hang on to it. Well, I did a little study this past week and saw something that I've never seen before, and I don't know why. My question was this. How many times is Caesar Augustus mentioned in the Bible? And then I followed it up with a second question. Why that number? Now, here's what I discovered. He is mentioned exactly one time. One time. This guy who was supposedly the, the king to end all kings, Augustus, the one who had brought this time of peace in and prosperity in, this guy who had brought hope to people that hadn't had a lot of hope before this, now all of a sudden he is here and everybody should be hanging on to it. You would think that the gospel writers, the biblical writers, would have mentioned Caesar Augustus over and over and over again. They mentioned him one time, and it's in the Christmas story. Here it is, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He wanted to know how many people they had now. So he was taking a census. They had expanded so much that he wanted to know how many people were a part of the Roman Empire. And that is the only mention of him. Four chapters later, in chapter 6, Caesar will be mentioned again, but this time it will be Tiberius. Because when Jesus was roughly 14 years old, Augustus died and Tiberius took his place. When Jesus talks about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar in the realm of taxes, he's talking about Tiberius. It would be Tiberius's reign that saw Jesus crucified, not Augustus. So why, if Augustus was this great answer for all of the surrounding area, why is he only mentioned one time in the Bible? Kind of a curious question. Here's what I came up with. Maybe, just maybe. That is God's subtle way of reminding us that our hope is not found in government officials. Our hope is not found in politicians because politicians come and go. The good ones and the bad ones, they come and go. Governments come and go. So Augustus is only mentioned one time as a matter of fact, and that's all it is because God wanted us to hold on to that very truth. And we would do well to do that. We would be Miles ahead, if we remembered that our hope is not found in government policy or politicians, it is found in the one who was and is and is to come. Our hope is found in God. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. So when he came into the world, he illuminated the culture around him. He illuminated everything. He showed them that governments come and go, that politicians come and go, but God remains. He showed him all of those things. He showed us all of those things so that we could learn from it, so that we could hold on to it, so that we could be taught by that, that we might go deeper into our understanding of God, which means deeper into the light. Because inasmuch as Jesus brought a broad light into the world when he manifests the love of God, he also brought a much smaller light, and that's the way the light of the world works. It starts out broad, and then it becomes very small. It's easy for us to believe that when Jesus came, he came just to illuminate the culture, to illuminate the government, to illuminate the country, to illuminate the society. And then if we could leave him there, it would be easy, it would be comfortable 
But he came for something much more purposeful than that. The broad light starts by illuminating for us who God is. And interestingly, it starts with light. There are two different opportunities every day for us to remember who God is. And they come in the form of light. When the sun rises in the morning, when it sets at night and it is replaced by the moon, that is a reminder of the sovereignty of God. That is a reminder of the simple fact and truth that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. If you were to apply the Bible study technique called the law of first mention and go back in the Bible to the first place where light is mentioned, it would take you right to the first chapter of Genesis, to the start of your Bible. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. From the very first day, from the beginning of time, God gave us the sun and the moon to remind us who he is. The sun illuminates our world so that we can make it through the day doing the things that we need to. The moon comes up at night to drive back the fears that are natural within all of us, the fear of the dark. Those things are all reminders that in perfect love, in God's love, there is no fear. But it would not be until that light began to shrink more to the point that it would penetrate our hearts that that fear would be driven out and be replaced with the pure love of God, the light of the world. We're talking about a light so focused that it can go right to our hearts and illuminate for us what we need to know the most. It shows us that there is separation between us and the Lord, and that separation comes from sin. This focused light makes sure that we know that. And by doing that, it helps us understand that at the beginning of time, God gave us the sun and the moon, and at the end of time, we'll have no need for the sun and the moon. The book of Revelation in the 21st chapter teaches us that when the new Jerusalem comes, there will be no sun, there will be no moon, because there will be no need, because the glory of the Lord will fill the temple. He will be the only light we need. But that's only for those that have this penetrating light that goes directly to our heart and shows us who He is and who we are. I was curious this past week about the most focused light there is. So I did a quick internet search to see what I could come up with, and I found a news release from the year 2008. Here's just a snippet from it. Take a look. Physicists have turned on the world's most powerful laser, whose pulses are more intense than any known light source in the universe. The incredible temperatures and pressures it generates when it hits a target will let scientists explore conditions found in exploding stars and the cores of giant planets. It's a penetrating light source, a penetrating laser that in their description of it requires so much power that it actually blackens out grids when they they use this thing, when they turn it on. That's how much power it takes. But it does accomplish what they want it to. It allows them to study, to get right to the core of planets and stars so that they can learn more about it. Well, as I was reading this, I found myself thinking back to what we had read in 1 John chapter 4. 
the light of the world had come. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that God is light and in Him is life. So I wondered what a news release might have looked like on the very first Christmas when the light of the world came to this earth. Here's what I came up with. God has turned on the world's most powerful light, whose pulses are more intense than any known light source in the universe. The incredible love and grace it generates when it hits a target will let each person illuminated by it explore the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus does for us. That focused light that penetrates to our heart shows us that there is no fear in death. We don't have to worry about that because Jesus overcame death. And that penetrating light shows us that we can have relationship with God. We don't have to remain distant any longer. We don't have to believe that there is a barrier or a gap or a chasm between us and him because Jesus came to close that up. That penetrating light showed us a way to salvation. That's what John was talking about as he went, goes on in 1 John chapter 1. The Lord showed us our sin, but thankfully he showed us a path through it. And that path is Jesus Jesus leads us through that sin that we might have a restored, redeemed relationship with God because he is the light of the world. And when this light gets really focused, that's what we see. It's crazy interesting. In fact, we might call it ironic. The great irony of the gospel is that God doesn't owe us anything, but he promises us everything by being the light of the world and showing us who he is. That is the great irony of the gospel, that he is the light of the world, illuminating for us our need and his goodness to bring those things together. So he's the broad light that illuminates the world that we live in, and he is the focus light that shows us that we need him over and over and over again. But he is also the bright light that shows us our future. He is the bright light that shows us our future. There is a popular doctrine making its way through churches today, and it's tragic. It's making its way through denominations. It's making its way into individual churches. It is truly tragic. That doctrine is called open theism. Open theism teaches that the future is not set, that God does not know what's going to happen. Therefore, our actions determine the future. They determine what's going to take place, and that is heresy. Listen to me, that is heresy. That is all that is. Because the Bible would show us the truth that rests on the other side of that through passages like this in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God has a purpose from beginning to end. He knows the end. There is freedom within his plan for us to make choices, but that does not change God's plans. Not at all. We go on to read passages like this. The psalmist writes in Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his, hearts, of his heart to all generations, to all generations, from the start to the finish, God's plan is there. He knows what's going to happen. By the way, verse 10 of chapter 33 reads like this. 
The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people, once again reminding us that our hope is not found in government. It is found in the gospel. It is found in the everlasting God. Later on in the book of Psalms, the 139th chapter, he will make things quite personal. Verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows everything. Open theism is heresy. God knows everything. So when the bright light that is the light of the world, that is Jesus, begins to shine in our life, he shows us a future, a bright future in him. There's at least three things that get illuminated when we understand that about Jesus Christ. Number one, we learn that he has the power and the ability to restore all broken relationships. He is the light of the world, a bright light. It also shows us that he has prepared for us a future, a well-ordered and well-mannered future that leads to all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. That's the life that he has for us. And then the third thing that this bright light illuminates for us as we look towards the future is an assured eternal destiny with him because those who have believed unto salvation receive that type of assurance. I am assured of my salvation. I am assured that as I continue to walk with the Lord, he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And the bright light that is the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us that. Those three things become a huge part of our life. A huge part. I like the way Paul would sum this up in Acts chapter 17, the 28th verse. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Once we understand all of that and we have found our way into the light that is Jesus Christ, we can say, For in him we live and move and have our being. He defines every aspect of who I am. In him I live and move and find my being. Now when we embrace that, when we figure that out, when we accept that gift and we allow that light into our heart, the light begins to shine in other ways as well. It really does. A lot of that is found in some of the Christmas definitions of Jesus. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus becomes the Prince of Peace. That's why the restoration of broken relationships can happen. That's why a well-ordered and mannered life can lead to a bright future. That's why we can know that our eternal destiny is assured through Jesus in heaven, peacefully with God, living peacefully with God because he is the light of the world. Now, as we've made our way through all of this for the past several weeks, I have held on to what I would refer to as the the big reveal. This is one of those things that I wanted to share with you the first week we got into this discussion and I thought, no, this, this is better suited for the last week. This is the big reveal. The worship team is going to come as I show this to you, but this this is cool stuff. Matthew chapter 5. Now remember, Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. That was his declaration. John would teach us that Jesus is the light of the world that manifests the love of God 
for all of us to see. It brings the love of God out into the open, made public for everyone to see. But then Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. He starts out by saying, I am the light of the world. But now we have him saying, you, his children, his followers, you are the light of the world. That's the big reveal. When Jesus lives in your heart, when the light of the world lives in you, you reflect that light. You have the ability to let that shine everywhere that you go. You become, according to Jesus himself, what he is, the light of the world. (laughs) Isn't that great? It really is. You may say, man, that that does sound great, but I, I don't know how to pull that off. Well, I'm glad you're wondering about that. Let me show you just four ways. These are four simple ways. This list could go on and on and on. We just don't have enough time to keep building it. Here's just four simple ways that you become the light of the world. Here they are up on the screen. Number one, by living a surrendered life to Christ. By determining that in him you will live and move and have your being. You surrender every aspect of who you are to him. A surrendered life to Christ. The Lord's already determined the future. The only question that you have to answer is how much of his glory will you allow to shine through you? That's it. By living a surrendered life to him, you become the reflection of who he is. Number two, we take the light of Jesus to where it's dark. We all know where it's dark. So you carry the the light of Jesus Christ, the love of God. That's exactly what the apostle John was talking about. You carry the love of God into dark places so that people get to see him. Number three, share your faith. Tell your story of what God has done for you personally. Share your faith. Share it with other people so that the definition, the working definition of faith can be realized by them. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Share your faith in Christ so that other people can experience the same thing. And then number four, shine together as the church. God left his church as a reflection of Jesus when Jesus ascended into heaven. He left the church as a place where people could come together to use their spiritual giftedness. He left the church as a place where people could come together as a body and when everybody is using their gifts, it will be whole and powerful, a force to be reckoned with. So you shine together as the church. He left his church as a place that would be ordered and protected under first his watchful eye and secondly the watchful eye of elders where we are protected, where we are covered by their ministry and by their hearts. We shine together as a church when we bring our gifts together to say that we're all moving in the same direction to accomplish the same purposes. So we come together and shine as a church. That is one of the great gifts given to us by the creator of the universe, his church, what he would refer to as his bride, so that we were all together within it. And when we are, the light of the world shines brightly. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, shines brightly. And my friends, if he lives within you, Jesus says, you are the light of the world.